Wan Nataprila with his Shura's Suta, the drocht of March hath pierced to the Ruta, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the fleur. Welcome to A Beginner's Guide to Chaucer, a podcast series that offers the beginner an insight into the life and times of English writer Geoffrey Chaucer and why his most notable work, The Canterbury Tales, still has relevance today. My name is Karen Carey, and I'll be chatting with Marion Turner, the J.R.R. Tolkien Professor of English Literature and Language here at the University of Oxford. Hello and welcome to Chaucer for Beginners. In this episode, we talk to Professor Marion Turner about his most notable work, The Canterbury Tales. So, Marion, can you just give us a, a quick overview of the tales themselves and, and you know, how they came about? What, when did he write them? And, and, you know, just a little bit about the context of them. Absolutely. So, Chaucer began the Canterbury Tales in the mid to late 1380s and he was still working on them when he died in 1400. So, it is an unfinished text. Um, the idea of the Canterbury Tales is that a group of people all meet up in the Tabard Inn in Southwark. So they meet up in in a pub, essentially, what we would think of as a pub, um, which has rooms where people can stay. They meet, so Southwark, which is just south of the river in London, so just south of the Thames. Now it's part of London, but then it was separated from the city of London. It was a dodgy area, essentially, where you could do, there was lots of things like prostitution that you weren't supposed to do in the city of London itself. And the Tabard Inn was a real inn, a real pub. It was run by someone called Harry Bailey, who is also a character in the Canterbury Tales. So this motley group of people meet up in this pub, and the reason they meet there. It's by chance. They meet there by chance because they're all going on pilgrimage to Canterbury. And this diff- this group of people all come together there, including a version of Chaucer himself. So he's he's speaking in the first person there. Of course, it's not the actual Chaucer. It's a kind of slightly comic version of him. So they all meet there in the, in the tabard and they decide that they will travel together to Canterbury and that they will tell stories on the way. And the idea is that they'll tell stories on the way there and they'll tell stories on the way back to each, each way. And that then there will be a prize for the best story. So it becomes a tale-telling competition. And of course, this is a brilliant literary conceit because it allows you to put together lots and lots of different kinds of stories, different kinds of voices, different tellers. And what they propose to happen doesn't happen. They don't even get get to Canterbury. We don't even get a tale from every single single pilgrim. And whether Chaucer would have completed this had he lived, who knows? I think probably not. Um, but we do get this collection of lots of stories told by lots of different people. And the ending that we have sees them very close to Canterbury. Um, and it's the end of the day. They've been traveling for a couple of days. It's the end of the day and they get there. So what the Canterbury Tales is, is this selection of stories often linked by passages in which the pilgrims talk to each other, argue with each other, comment on the tales, tell stories that might mock each other's stories, that refer to each other in rude ways sometimes. Some of the stories seem very closely to represent the worldview of the pilgrims. Others seem to have a a less close relationship between pilgrim and tale. So it's a varied group, but that's essentially what, what the stories are doing. So do we ever find out who wins the prize? Or as you say, it's just an unfinished text. It's unfinished. So no, and that's quite good, really, because it means it opens up discussion and debate for for every reader, you know, who should win that prize. So what sort of um, literary techniques does he um, employ to 
frame these tales, if you like? Yeah, I mean, so in terms of literary techniques, it's one of those, wow, where do I start? Um, So Chaucer is the poet who invented the iambic pentameter. So the iambic pentameter, which is a 10-syllable line with five stresses. So it goes da-dum, 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 da-dum. It's the poetic line that's most associated with Shakespeare. Um, But it was, in fact, invented by Chaucer. His early poetry is more often in a shorter shorter line, but he developed it in response to... um, to Italian poetic forms, in fact. So most of the Canterbury Tales is in that form, though some of it, there, there, are, there are a couple of prose tales. There's also sometimes uses different forms um, and uses lots of different different rhyming patterns and so on. He, I mean, some people have suggested that in the general prologue, he is using a, a technique which much, much later was called free and direct discourse, in which the narrator seems to be speaking objectively, but actually is reflecting the views of the person about whom he's speaking. So when he describes the different pilgrims in the general prologue, he seems to do it with a kind of ironic, joking sympathy for views that are obviously outrageous. So he often is describing the pilgrims as if what they're doing, in a very naive way, clearly showing that they're sinful and wrong in all kinds of ways, but doing it in a way that seems to exculpate them and to say that they are okay. So in that general prologue, we get the, the pilgrim portraits where we get a sense of, of who they are. And that begins to set up for us the kinds, of, the kinds of stories that they might be going to tell. He then goes into you know, each story. They're told in so many different genres and forms. But in terms of the frame, we then see in the frame a kind of moving on of the narrative where in various points in the frame, we're told you know, where they are, for example, or we, you know, that the sun has moved on in the sky, that they're talking to each other about those stories, making judgments about the stories. So, so we have a, a kind of encoding within the, the text of, of audience response. And that is a crucial literary technique because Chaucer is really interested in the reader, in reader response and in the idea that readers will respond differently to texts. And that's just a fundamental importance to Chaucer's poetics throughout his text, the idea that there isn't one authoritative meaning. And he encodes that by, so for instance, he will tell a story and then he will say, he, he, will, he will get one of the pilgrims to say, well, this is what that story means. And it's always a ridiculous interpretation. You know, so, so for example, you get to the end of The Physician's Tale, which is this awful story in which um, a completely innocent girl... Um, her father ends up killing her to stop her being um, being raped by 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 a man who wants to to abduct her, and after it, the host Harry Bailey, the, the innkeeper, says, "Well, her beauty was her death." And you're like, "No, that's not what happened at all." You know, it wasn't her beauty's fault. I mean, of course it wasn't. You know, and, and people kind of talk about you, you know, and, and so it encourages us to think, "Well, what really happened there?" No, her father was her death. You know, this rapist was the you know who was the problem here? Or there's another story, the Franklin's tale, which ends with um, the Franklin saying, "Who was the most fray?" Which means generous. So. Three men have all done particular things towards the end of that story. And so it encourages the audience to think, well, who was the most generous? Were any of them generous? What about the woman? You know, what's, what happened, to, who was also important in that story? So it encourages reader response right across the Canterbury Tales, whether the stories are responding to each other or are being given responses. So it really makes us enter into the text. So how were they received then, the tales themselves? Yeah, I mean, great question. So when we think about what it was like in this era. 
we need to remember this is almost 100 years before print. So Caxton set up his printing press in Westminster in about 1476, so 76 years after Chaucer had died. So Chaucer is operating in a manuscript culture. So of course that means that you can only reach a very small group of people compared to the number you can reach in a, in a print culture. And early on, Chaucer, and, and, and Chaucer didn't wait to finish a text before he, he circulated it. So we know, for example, that The Knight's Tale was circulated quite early on. And in the 1380s, another poet was quoting from The Knight's Tale. So this is a long time before Chaucer had written you know, the bulk of the Canterbury Tales. So he would circulate a few tales, one tale, a couple of tales, to, to different groups of people and get their responses before you know writing more. The kinds of people that he was circulating it to. So some of it is, is, is speculative, but we do have some evidence. So as we talked about in, in, in the episode about Chaucer's life and the world more generally, Chaucer straddled lots of different social groups. So he probably aired his poems a bit at court, but mainly the people, the highest people in society weren't reading that much English at this time. When we look at their wills, they were mainly reading French books. So he may have had some audience amongst the very highest of society. He certainly knew those people, the kings and queens at the time. But people on the edges of the court, chamber knights, they certainly read his texts. Merchants also read his texts. So the earliest example of one of his texts being sold comes in the 1390s and it was a copy of Troilus. It was quite cheap and it was being used to pay a debt and it involved an innkeeper and brothel owner, for example, who was you know, quite a well-off merchant. But those were the kinds of people as well. We know of London scribes who worked for guilds, for example, who owned and read his texts very early on. So we're talking... I mean, relatively educated people. We don't have any evidence that, you know, ploughmen were, were hearing Chaucer's texts. But what we do know about reading at this time is that people wouldn't usually read a text on their own. If you got a manuscript, you would read it to a group. Now, you might do that in a great household, in a courtly setting. You might do it in an inn or a guild hall. So one manuscript would be likely to reach many, many people who would hear it and would then discuss it. And even if someone was reading on their own, they usually read out loud, which I think is interesting for us to think about because the way that we read, which is usually silently on our own, is an incredibly odd way to read. When you think historically, geographically, around the world, across time, that's not how people have usually read. Usually reading is something that is social and collaborative and involves debate and discussion. It's also something that you speak and you hear, you taste words, you hear words. You don't just take them in through the eye. That's really interesting because now thinking back at it, yes, when you're looking at the at the text, it sounds better when you're reading it than when when you're reading it out loud than when you're reading it on the page. You know, you, yeah. it, it doesn't have as much impact as when you read it out loud, does it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And people find it easier to understand when they hear it out loud. And of course, this is particularly the case for poetry, which is all about you know rhythm and rhyme and the set, the idea of the poetic line and hearing hearing echoed sounds and so on. So it is really helpful to read them out out loud and to hear them read. Yeah. So how does the Canterbury Tales differ from something like the Decameron. I, mean, I love the Decameron. Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, Chaucer was influenced by yeah. Boccaccio. Um, so how, how does that 
dif- how do they differ from the Decameron? Yes. So um, just for, for listeners then, the, the, the Boccaccio's Decameron is another tale collection. So Boccaccio, really important Italian writer, writing in the middle of the 14th century, so just slightly before Chaucer. And in the Decameron, so it's set during the plague and 10 people, they meet up in Santa Maria Novella in Florence and they a church in Florence and they decide to flee the city to a country house and wait out the plague. And while they're there, they're going to tell stories. So it's not a pilgrimage journey, but it's the same kind of idea of moving away from your normal life into an almost carnival zone and experience that takes you away from your normal duties of life and then telling stories to to pass the time. So, and you know, Boccaccio's text is a much more formally perfect text. So it's 10 days, 10 stories every day, 100 stories. And some of those stories are directly influential on Chaucer. So for example, the very last story was then translated from Boccaccio's Italian by Petrarch into Latin, and then it became Chaucer's Clark's Tale in English, for example. The really crucial difference with the Decameron is social class. So in the Decameron, the, the, the group of 10, they are varied in terms of, of sex. There's there's many there's more women than there are men, or as Chaucer only has, has three women and many men. But it's not as varied in terms of, soci- of social class and demographics. So when they meet... Boccaccio's group, they are all either related to each other or close friends, and they are all from a high social class. They are gentles. There are servants within the Decameron, but they don't tell stories. They they serve. The storytellers are all this group of gentles. What Chaucer does is radically different, and it's really hard to to overstate the importance of that. That what to Chaucer gets together this group. The person of highest social class is a knight who's not really that important. There is a ploughman at the bottom. Most of them are middling people. So there's a miller, there's a cook, there's a merchant, there's a lawyer, there's a physician, a, a doctor, there's the wife of Bath, there's a pardoner, there's, there's two nuns. It's a real range of people. A lot of them are kind of city people, people that you would you would meet in somewhere like London rather than, than out in, in the countryside. And the idea of of saying, well, we shouldn't just listen to voices of authority. We shouldn't just listen to people of social importance. Maybe a miller's got a better tale to tell than the knight. Let's listen to women. Let's listen to these people who are just here to cook our dinner. Let's see what their story might be like. That's really amazing and kind of mind-blowing to say we need to listen to their voices. And the point is not that everyone's going to tell a brilliant tale or a tale that you'll love. The point is that you don't know until you listen. And I think that Chaucer was really profoundly interested in perspective. Now, when Chaucer travelled to Italy, he saw early artistic experiments in perspective by people such as Giotto when he visited um, Santa Croce in Florence, for example, in 1373. And he himself experimented with perspective. You know, when we think about the Canterbury Tales, he's often showing us, and his other texts as well, he's often showing us that what you see is dependent on where you are standing, you know, metaphorically and literally. If you come from a certain background, you will see things in a different way. And I think this is just a crucial message for us in any era. But I often think that today, ever more, 
we are fed the same perspective, right? And that is what the internet and algorithms are trying to do. You read one story and then it will feed you other stories that give the same point of view and back up your worldview. And that is a huge, huge problem politically in our world that we don't see other perspectives. And I have to go out of my way to find newspapers and news stories that don't back up what I want to, to read. But Chaucer 600 years ago is, is aware of that. Of course, he's not aware of internet rhythms, but he aware, he's aware of this kind of thing when he's saying, well, get out of your comfort zone, challenge yourself, listen to that different kind of person, that person that you wouldn't normally meet, hear what they have to say and think about it, engage with it. I mean, I think that it's it's difficult to use to use words such as as, as democratic mm. because he, that wouldn't have been very meaningful to him in, an, in in such a different political era. But I think he is radical in lots of ways, and in his interest in listening to different kinds of voices, I do think that is that's quite revolutionary in all kinds of ways and very different to what other authors are saying. Yeah, I mean, because I, I, I would imagine that. Before him, it's all tales of, you know, knights in shining armour and sort of lots of morality type tales. It wasn't really, they weren't really tales about ordinary people, were there? I mean, I think you did get some tales about ordinary people. So someone like Boccaccio is telling Fablio tales about kind of ordinary people who are adulterous and mercantile, but they're not being told by ordinary people. So that's very different. If you've got someone who's quite aristocratic, who's telling a tale about vulgar ordinary people, that's somewhat different from having ordinary people and telling a whole range of different tales because they don't always tell the so-called vulgar tales. They tell, tell a range of different kinds of stories. So I think it's... It's more important to think about voice than about subject matter in that way. It's mm. about that you know, who gets to speak and be heard. Yeah. So going back to the tales themselves, then the the, the characters, the, the way they're it's laid out in the in the Canterbury Tales. So the Knight's Tale is chosen as the first in the printed edition. Mm. Why do you think that was? Why not the Miller's Tale or the or the Reeves Tale, for instance? Uh, yeah. So it certainly is the first. So we don't know the order of all the Canterbury Tales, but we do know some of the order. And what happens at the end of the general prologue? So where the general prologue, where they all meet and we get the descriptions. The host, Harry Bailey, who sets up this whole competition, then says that they're all going to draw lots about who will tell the first the first tale. But he's obviously fixed it so that the person of highest social class will tell the first tale because that's how he wants it to be. So Harry Bailey, although he is himself a, a, a tavern owner, an, in, an innkeeper, he, um, he, he believes in social hierarchy. So he wants the important knight to set things off well and tell the first story. So the knight tells his story. He's the person of highest um, secular, so non-religious status. And after his story, the host says, right, that was great. Now let's have the monk, who is the person of highest religious status. He should tell the next tale. So the host is trying to to have a, a, an order which is traditional. Let's listen to the, the important people first. But that's not what happens. So, as I say, the host says, let's have next most important person. And then the miller says, oh, I'm a bit drunk and I'm going to tell a great tale. You know, so it's like you're in the pub and someone kind of goes, I want listen to me. You know? and, and he, so, so we have this very drunken person who says, yeah, I've had a lot to drink. I want to quite the knight's tale. I want to repay the knight and kind of tell a tale back at him. I'm going to speak next. And people go, oh, really you're drunk oh. he goes yeah I am I'm going to tell my story and he does tell his story and it's great but the important or another important thing about that is that 
After that, we don't go back. That's not just a blip. After his story, the Reeve then says, well, I think your story was actually a story that was trying to get at me. So I'm going to tell a story which gets at you and your profession. You've told a story about a stupid carpenter. I'm a carpenter. I'm going to tell a story about a stupid miller because you're a miller. And, and it all goes on in that kind of chaos after that. So the whole text seems to take on its own autonomy. The people choose who's going to speak, who speaks loudest, who then wants to respond to someone else. And that idea of a top-down order goes away. And Chaucer obviously is designing it to go away. So we have, a, in a sense, at the beginning, there's a, there's a, a text we think we're going to get. And that's not the text we get after the Knight's Tale. Everything changes. And again, that's such an important part of, of the idea of what, of what storytelling is, that it's organic, that it takes on its own power for itself. So what do you think are the more, most noteworthy um, stories for the, for the modern reader today? You know, what, which, which ones do you think re- really resonate in this day and age? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that is a difficult one. And I think, so I think, first of all, I would say that one of the reasons that Chaucer is so popular across time and has never gone out of fashion or popularity is because of the variety of what he wrote. So different eras find different tales interesting. So when you look at, say, the Victorian era, people liked the stories about, mainly, they liked the stories about female submissiveness, um, didacticism, female saints, um, romance and chivalry, those kinds of things. In the 20th century, people liked the stories about sex in trees, people putting their bums out the window and farting, adultery, those kinds of stories, right? So, uh, you know, those are the ones that, that people know about. When we look at, say, Pasolini's film of the Canterbury Tales, he only uses tales about sex. And the one he puts in some that aren't about sex and Chaucer, and he just inserts lots of extra sex scenes. When you look at 19th century collections of Chaucer, which were often made for children and young people, it's things, it's not those tales at all. It's things like the Knight's Tale and the Clark's Tale, you know, these kind of serious tales that are not so so popular today. So, so, so I suppose what I'm saying is that this is something which is very changeable. Um, lots of people remain very interested in The Wife of Bath's prologue and tale. I mean, those those are, are very different, the prologue and the tale. But people, I think, are extremely interested in the female voice. And we see lots and lots of adaptations of that, of that today and across time. I think that's one that people are very interested in. The Pardoner's Tale, which is the story of three rioters who try to kill death. It's a it's a I mean, it's a serious morality tale in lots of ways but it's the story that was the inspiration for Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows for example so that's a story which has still got a lot of of resonance today. The Nun's Priest's Tale that's been popular right across time I mean that's a beast fable it's got various obvious moralities to it but it also digresses in lots of ways it's the story of Chanticleer the the rooster and Reynard the fox and it's a great one because it works for lots of different ages and it has lots and lots of different meanings to it but as I say the beauty of the Canterbury Tales is that everyone can find something that they are interested in because there are so many different things there thank you very much You have been listening to A Beginner's Guide to Chaucer. You can listen to other episodes in this series on the University of Oxford's podcast site or on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to learn more about Professor Marion Turner's work on Chaucer, 
then please follow the link in the description. Thank you for listening.